We are in the book of Mark today. We are going to be in Mark chapter 1. We are going through the gospel story of Jesus' life. And we're going through attempting to go chronologically rather than just go through one gospel at a time. We're going through the whole story of the gospel. And so we are continuing this journey through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I want to take a step back for a moment from what we're going to talk about today and just point to this overarching story that is unfolding as we go through the Gospels, because I don't want us to miss the central thing that is happening, because kind of like what Ryan's saying, we can get caught up in the mechanics of what we're reading today and lose the overarching story of the whole Gospel. As we've gone through 18 weeks so far, of Jesus' life, we're watching something happen overall. The gospel is spreading. It starts even before Jesus in the Old Testament, but we start with this baby Jesus, and we're watching the gospel move and spread and get bigger and get better known, right? It is growing. As he is doing more ministry, this is continuing to happen. He travels through Galilee. He goes to Cana. He goes to Jerusalem and then even into Samaria where the people are thought to be untouchable and unlovable. He goes on and we're watching the whole thing grow. And today I really want us to see that something else is growing as we are a part of this story, as we're reading through the story. Not only is the gospel growing, but we begin to see that the authority and power of Jesus is not growing because he's God, but the the understanding that everybody has of the power and authority of Jesus is growing. More and more people are beginning to understand this isn't just a rabbi. This isn't even just a prophet. He is something far greater, and they're still trying to wrap their minds like, what is this power and authority that we're seeing in this man. A couple of weeks ago, we read the story of Jesus healing an official's son. And we saw Jesus heal somebody who wasn't even there with him. The son was 20 miles away, and Jesus heals him. But during that conversation, he's speaking to the crowd, and he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And he says this as, as a critique of them, that their faith right now is just based on seeing him do crazy things. But what's weird about the story is he keeps doing these miraculous things. And so he makes this critique like, you have to see signs and wonders to believe, but then he provides them these signs and wonders. In fact, this is just one of the first ones that he does. Today we're going to jump over to the Gospel of Mark, like I said, and we're going to read how he views some of these miraculous signs. Mark is also known as John Mark, later in the book of Acts. He's one of the guys that accompanies Paul on the missionary journeys, but he's also the human author of the book of Mark. His Gospel is different in the way that it's written than the other Gospels. Mark is rapid. He's fast. Everything jumps. He uses the word immediately over 40 times 
in his Gospels. Everything is just moving, moving, going. And so it's the perfect one for us to look at today as I want to share with you a series of vignettes of just quick stories of Jesus doing miraculous things immediately after he calls those four uh, disciples, Simon and Andrew, James and John, to kind of full-time follow him, things just start to happen in the book of Mark. Last week, Pastor Ben did a great job of talking about that calling and how Jesus was uh, not believed in his hometown. And then Mark just starts moving. So now Peter and Andrew, the brothers, and James and John, the brothers, they're following Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And then the way that Mark writes it, they go fishing real quick. They jump straight into it. And so if you have your Bible open or a device, Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 28 is the first vignette story I want to share with you. They went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once fame spread everywhere throughout all surrounding region of Galilee. So they travel back up to Capernaum, and Jesus does what he almost always does. And this gets lost sometimes when we read the Bible. On the Sabbath, he always goes to church. He always goes to synagogue. And he goes, and on this particular day, he shows up and he teaches. It might sound weird to us that he just randomly shows up and teaches the group, but this was actually pretty common in those days. He's known as a rabbi. And so when he shows up, they invite him to come and teach them a lesson. And so he goes and he teaches. It doesn't even tell us what he's teaching about, but it tells us that they are completely astonished by his teaching. Because he's not teaching like anybody else teaches. Most of the rabbis at this time, they would come and they would share a scripture, and they would say, well, Rabbi Gamaliel thinks that this says that, and Rabbi so-and-so says that this is what this means. And Rabbi so-and-so says that this is what this means. Jesus doesn't do that. He shows up, opens the scroll, and says, this is what this means. He teaches as the authority on what the Word of God is. And so they are blown away by this. He teaches the profound truth of what the Word of God is. And then, this shocking moment, when you realize that maybe everyone who's sitting in church is not actually a Christian, or maybe there's someone who's demon-possessed sitting right next to you. Don't nudge your husband or your wife right now, okay? Don't do that. But all of a sudden, they're sitting in, in church and synagogue, 
And a demon-possessed man just starts yelling. Can you imagine this? You're like, I thought I was safe here. But he starts yelling. He's saying, what, what are you doing here? Why have you come? Are you here to destroy us? I know who you are. Listen, the demon knows who Jesus is. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then Jesus speaks back to him. He says, be silent and come out of it. I love this. Jesus basically talks to the demon. He says, shut up and get out. It's basically what he says. And the demon listens. He does exactly what Jesus says because Jesus has the power and the authority. And people are blown away by this power and this authority. They're shocked. They look around at one another and say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands unclean spirits and they obey him. Basically, if, if it was me, he'd say, did that guy just tell a demon what to do? And he listened to him? What kind of power are we talking about here? And Jesus' fame and authority and his power continue to grow. Mark moves immediately to this next story, verse 29. And immediately... He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told, her about, they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, And the whole city gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So they leave synagogue. They go just outside of Capernaum to Simon Peter's house in the small town of Bethsaida. And when they get there, they tell Jesus that Peter's mother-in-law is very ill. Now, this is just a random side note for you that maybe were raised in the Catholic Church like I was. The first pope was married. Did you catch that? Peter is the first pope that the Catholic Church points to, and yet he has a mother-in-law, which means he has a wife. That's just a random thing for you that I think is fun. And you have to be careful, because if Jesus is around, he might heal your mother-in-law, and that, I mean, no, okay. Sorry. Sorry to all the mother-in-laws out there. You're amazing. We love you. Jesus goes in. He doesn't even say anything. Listen to the story. He doesn't even say, there's no magic words. There's nothing. He just walks in. He takes her hand and he heals her. And she gets up in classic Jewish mama style. She gets up. If you watch the, the show, The Chosen, it's It's perfect. She gets up and she's just like, what am I doing? I need to make you food. Let's go. Come on. Like she starts serving them immediately. I can imagine. I don't know if she does this. This is my imagination. She probably walks past Simon Peter and says, you look skinny. Let me feed you. Right? She just immediately jumps up and starts to serve him. I love this little vignette about Peter's mother-in-law because in the midst of his fame growing, in the midst of his power and authority being on display to more and more people and growing and it's public and and people are seeing it. This one is just this little moment of intimacy in the privacy of a home. He takes 
the mother-in-law's hand and he heals her. Because so often we might think with everything that's going on in the world, there's no way that God could care about little old me. But look in the middle of this story, in the middle of God's power being put on display, and Jesus introducing himself into the world, he takes a moment to heal just this this woman who's his friend's mother-in-law. There is nothing that is below God. There is no story that he does not care about. There is no person that he does not love. And you, no matter what you think about yourself, are not the single exception to that rule. He loves all of us. And it's not just about the masses. It is about the individuals. What an amazing little story. By the end of that day, it's Sabbath, remember, and so nobody can travel while the sun is up. But as soon as the sun goes down, the next day starts in the Jewish calendar. And so people start to come. As soon as the sun comes down, they start to travel to Jesus. They're bringing everyone, the sick and the demon-possessed people, and he heals them. But again, he does not allow the demons to speak because they know who he is. And he's not ready for everyone to understand that yet. So his fame, his power, his authority, it's growing. People are hearing, they're traveling, they're coming to him. And then immediately, Mark jumps to the next, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed, and Simon and those who were with him searched for them. And they found him, and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Now I got to tell you personally, if there's ever a verse that shows me that I'm not Jesus. It's where it says he got up very early in the morning while it was still dark. I'm not that dude. There are probably people in here that get up and go to work while I'm still awake at night. Like, I have, I have been a night owl my whole life. And so when he says, he got up that early, I'm like, I don't need a lot of proof that I'm not Jesus, but that's it right there. But Jesus does, and the Word of God tells us that he often gets away to desolate places alone to be with the Lord. And I think even if I'm not a morning person, this is what Jesus is modeling for us here. He takes time to get away to be with his Father and to listen, to pray. Far too often we say things like, man, I wish God would just tell me what to do. I wish God would just give me the answer and yet we don't take any time to just go be with him and hear him. We don't take that time to go say, God, what would you have me do in this situation? What's the next step? We just, we just say, oh, I wish I knew. And I think often God's saying, I wish you'd come and ask me. Because I'll answer. And he does this. And sometimes God's answers are surprising to people as they were this time. Simon and his search party are looking everywhere because people are already lining up the next morning to see Jesus. And you can imagine Simon probably wants to say something to Jesus like, you're a rock star. 
people are waiting for you. Simon's probably excited, like finally they are getting the attention that he thinks they deserve. People are lining up to see Jesus. Everyone wants to see you. You are, you are in demand, Jesus. Let's go to your adoring public. And then Jesus says something that I don't th- think Simon was expecting. He says, let's go. I'm sure Simon is, is frustrated. Like, what do you mean, let's go? Like, the people are waiting. You're famous. He's like, yeah, I have other things to do. This is not why I'm here. Jesus replies, let us go to the next town so they may preach there also, for that is why I came out. I love this. Listen, why is Jesus doing what he's doing? Why is he traveling from these towns and towns and towns? What is his sole purpose? What is his why for what he's doing? It's not to perform signs and wonders and miracles. He's there to preach the gospel. He's going to tell people about the gospel. He's healing people out of compassion. And it's giving him a lot of attention. And people are seeing and so people are coming. But all of it is so that he can preach the gospel to them so that they can know that there is salvation to be had in him. Just like he did when he went to Nazareth but was rejected, he goes to Nazareth and he preaches this message. He, he quotes from Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads them that message from Isaiah and then he says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is there among these cities. He's there to preach the gospel and to set people free from the destruction that sin has wrought in their lives. So he and his disciples continue to go, probably against his disciples' wishes. They go, and they're not, they're not going to big cities right now. They're going to towns. And he's preaching the gospel in their synagogues. And he continues to cast out demons, and his authority continues to grow. And then immediately, we read this next Little story, verse 40. An amazing story. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said, See to it that you don't say anything to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Just the first part of the first sentence of this story is wild. 
if you look at it. Leprosy, if you don't know, is a horrible disease. It is an absolutely horrible infection which can lead to all of your body having damaged nerves and your body begins to not be able to feel pain. And so something might happen to your finger or your toes or your foot and you have a wound and you don't realize it so it gets infected and so often they will lose entire limbs or fingers. There are terrible stories, not to be disgusting, of people waking up and animals are just gnawing off their fingers or toes and they don't even know it because of this disease. It's a disease that not only destroys their body, but socially it means you are a complete cast out. Nobody will touch you. Nobody will come near you. You are a complete cast out of society. It still exists today, but it's very uncommon. However, in those days, it was more common. And to be declared a leper meant that basically your wife, your life was over. You had to stay 50 paces away from any group of people at all times. You were required to shave your head. And if you were around anybody at all, you had to walk around screaming, unclean, unclean. And then people would cross streets or cities to get away from you. Some of the rabbis at the time would boast about how poorly they would treat lepers. One rabbi said, I will not buy an egg in a marketplace that a leper has ever stood, stepped foot in. Another rabbi would boast that if he saw a leper, he would start to throw stones at the leper so that the leper would run away from him. And so when this leper comes to Jesus, that statement alone is insane. He comes right up to Jesus and kneels at his feet. And Jesus does not throw stones at him. He does not yell at him or scream at him or say, what are you doing? And I guarantee the people, if this is happening around groups of people, which we can be pretty sure it is, the other people are gasping and they're scurrying, like, get away from this guy. And yet Jesus stays right there. And it says, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him. Jesus reaches out and he touches the untouchable. A man who probably has not felt human touch in years. And the hand of God just reached out and touched him. And it says that Jesus was moved with compassion. This word, if you've spent any time with me, this is my favorite Greek word. Does anybody remember my favorite Greek word? Shplagnitsiomai. I love this word. It means to be moved to your bowels. Right? In the Jewish world, they didn't believe that feelings came from your heart. They believed that Feelings were the seated in your guts. So Jesus is moved to his splagnitsiomai with compassion. And not just that, there's, there's an idea here in the Greek language to be moved this way is, is also, there's a, there's a part of it that is anger. 
It is righteous indignation. Jesus sees what sin has done to this man. Not necessarily his specific sin, but just the world of sin. He sees what he's done to this man, and he's moved with anger and compassion and pity for what has happened to him. And he reaches out his hand, and he touches him, and he heals him. He says, I will be clean. This leper comes to Jesus, and notice the faith that he has. I love this. The leper doesn't say, can you heal me? The leper says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus basically says, I'm willing. Be clean. And we see something incredible here. Dr. Paul David Tripp points this out, and I do quote other rabbis because I'm not Jesus. Paul David Tripp points this out, and I love this. When Jesus reaches out and touches the man, Jesus is not made unclean by him. He is made clean by Jesus. You hear that? This sinner who's broken and destroyed and and in pain, he reaches out and everybody else would have scurried away. Like, don't be made unclean by him. Jesus reaches out and instead of becoming unclean, he gives him his cleanness, his holiness. And there's something that is amazing in this little vignette because we can see in this the whole story of the gospel. Jesus gives the leper his purity in exchange for nothing that the leper has to offer. And that is exactly what we are doing when we cry out to Jesus and we say, Jesus, save me. I have nothing to offer you except for my dirtiness. And yet Jesus is not made dirty by my dirtiness. I am made clean by his holiness. It's beautiful. Immediately, though, the leper is made clean and healed from the disease, and the very first thing he does is do exactly what Jesus told him not to do. Isn't that just like us? Jesus does something real nice for us, and we're like, I'll go sin now. Right? Jesus says, don't go tell anybody. Just go get declared pure by the priest. And what does he do? He starts telling everybody. Does exactly what Jesus said don't do. And it means from that point on, Jesus can't even go into these towns because as his authority and power is growing, it's one thing to heal somebody from, you know, a little, a little disease. It's another thing to cast out a demon. But now he's just done something that nobody has ever done. He cleansed the leper. And so now his authority, his power is growing even more. And as we come to the crescendo of this whole idea of watching his power and authority grow, I want to share with you one more vignette from Mark chapter 2. Chapter 2 starts with a story that many of you heard many times, but I hope that we can look at it with fresh eyes today. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. When they returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
And many were gathered together so that there were there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let him down on the bed which the paralytic lay. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving this in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Like I said, many of you have probably read or heard this story many times. But maybe not in the context of these rapid stories and watching the power and authority of Jesus grow bigger and bigger and more incredible. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling around all of these towns. He's preaching the gospel. He's healing sick people. They're realizing he's not just another rabbi. He can do things we've never seen before. They returned to Capernaum. Word has gotten out about all these miraculous things, and so they go probably to Simon Peter's house again. We don't know that for sure, but it seems like they're probably just outside of Capernaum at Simon Peter's house, and word has gotten out. And so these four guys, they, they have a friend who's a paralytic, and they're like, we need to get our friend to see Jesus because Jesus can heal him. But when they get to the house, imagine this, there's this house and there's people standing everywhere. You can't even get to the doorway. <clears throat> and so they get to the house and they realize, like, we, we can't get in there. And so they have a brilliant idea. They look at the house and many of the houses in that time and that day had porches on the roofs and they had stairs to get up to the porch. They would go sit out there in the evening when it cooled down and they would talk because they didn't have Netflix. So they would actually spend time with people and crazy ideas. And, and, and they would do that and they would go up on the roof and they'd hang out. So these guys are like, we'll go up the stairway and then we'll just tear the roof apart. Now you can imagine if this is Peter's house, Mrs. Peter and mother-in-law, not stoked that somebody is breaking through their roof. But, but he did just heal her, so like, we'll let it go. So they begin to do this. They lower their friend down to Jesus in the house. And when Jesus sees their faith and all that they've gone through to get their friend to him, he says the most shocking thing that he has said yet, which is saying something. But he says to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, what's funny about this is you might think if you're the paralytic or his friends, you might be thinking, 
no, you're confused, Jesus. That's not why we're here. We need him to walk again. We didn't come here for forgiveness. We came here for healing so that our friend could walk again. They don't understand. Like we don't understand that sometimes the greatest need, not sometimes, all the time, the greatest need that we have are not the external circumstances of our lives. This man and his friends think that his greatest need in life is to walk again. But our greatest problems are not external to ourselves. Our greatest need is that we cannot do anything about the sin that we have in us. And so our greatest need is that somebody else might be able to take that sin away. The friends bring the paralytic to Jesus for healing, but they don't even fully grasp the healing that he has to offer and what he actually needs. What he needs is the healing and redemption of Jesus. He needs salvation. So he does this whole thing. He says, son, your your sins are forgiven. And there are scribes, religious lawyers, standing there. And, And this is crazy. They don't even say it out loud. Do you notice that in the story? They just have thoughts. And Jesus turns and looks at them. You can imagine that was kind of a moment. Why are you thinking what you're thinking? What? What do you, what do you, what do you mean? We're, we're not thinking anything. You are. Why are you, think, why are you saying what you're saying in your mind? And he questions them. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? This is a really interesting question because it's kind of a mind-bending twister because it's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven if you think about it because there's no way to measure that. I can just tell you, like, Dale, your sins are forgiven. Now that's true, but not because I tell you. But, like, you can't measure that. But if I say to you, get up, paralytic, pick up your bed and walk out, you can measure whether I'm full of it or not based on whether or not you get up and walk out. So it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven. But the problem is nobody who's just a human can actually do that. So he says, what's easier to say? Well, one is easier to say, impossible to do unless you're not just another person, unless you are God in flesh. So when verse 10 comes and Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now don't miss this. Come back. I know we've been here a long time. But this is the apex of this whole story. The authority of Jesus, the power and the authority of Jesus has been growing and growing and growing around all the people around him. But at this point, he's speaking to the religious leaders and he's telling them, I have 
the power and the authority to forgive sins. And the religious leaders know that the word of God says nobody can do that except God. And so what he's saying to them in no uncertain terms is, I am the Savior and the Messiah that you've been waiting for for generations, and I am God in flesh. This is what gets Jesus crucified later on. Statements like this. This is why when somebody says to me, like, Jesus never said he was God. Oh, yeah, he did. That's why he was killed. Because he says things like this. The stories of these early gospel chapters are stories of the gospel spreading. And they are stories of people coming to realize that Jesus is not just a rabbi. He's not just a prophet. He is the savior of the world, like the Samarians said, Samaritans. He is the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for for as long as they have existed. And in this moment, he is right there amongst them. And the same is true for us today. Obviously in a different way, but we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus residing in us, the Holy Spirit. All of you who are followers of Jesus, you have the Spirit of God on you. That same Jesus who increasingly shows His power and His authority and His healing and how much love He has for all these people, He resides in our splagnitziomai. He is with us in our hearts and our souls. And so we have to ask ourselves, what role is He playing in our lives today? Do we treat Him as if he is the almighty God of the universe and the only one who has the power and authority to forgive our sins and to set us right with God and to make us whole? Or are we treating him as if he's just another rabbi, another prophet who has some nice things to say? And if I just follow his rules and be a good person everything will be fine. Or worse yet, is he just entertainment for us? We go to church, we sing some songs, maybe we'll even get to see like a miraculous healing at some point. This whole section of short stories from Mark show us the ever-increasing influence and power that Jesus has in people's lives, in our lives. It shows us how patiently he tries to get people to see how much greater he is than just a teacher or a prophet. He is the God of universe in flesh, come to save us from our sins and to bring us back into right relationship with himself so that we might live Lives that are full of purpose and meaning, and then someday be with Him for eternity. It is so much greater than just, I want to see you do a fun thing. You're a nice guy. You're a good teacher. No, 
He is God in the flesh, and he's putting it on display for people to see so that when he speaks the gospel, they will hear it, they will understand it, and they will be changed by it. May God forbid that we treat him as anything less than that. May God forbid that we try to make him smaller in our eyes than he truly is. And may God help us to surrender ourselves to his lordship and to the power of his gospel message. Amen.